right, James. Welcome. Reflection as a service. Hey, it's good to be here, Paul. We're actually in person, like in, face, face to face. We are. We're in person this time, and we're recording on one mic, a bi-directional mic. So this is going to be different to mix, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Paul has provided cognac. <laughs> That's right. I hope hope it doesn't uh, mess us up too much for the episode. Tonight, we're going to talk about a couple things. This is going to be me and James, no guest tonight, but we're excited about it. We have both, or I've been thinking a lot about resiliency or resilience and how it affects you as an entrepreneur, how it affects you as a software engineer and other aspects like within testing, are your tests resilient? Are your applications that you build as a software engineer resilient? Things like that, but mostly the psychological aspect. And we also want to talk about an article that came out last week. The 22nd of January. And what's that one called? Staging Servers Must Die by Edith Harbaugh. And that was on readwrite.com. Yeah. And Edith is not here and we'd be happy to have her anytime. I don't know her. I didn't reach out to her. It's kind of unfair not to have her opinion or, or thoughts here, but she put it out there on the web. So we're going to talk about that. But um, I'm looking forward to it. Let's and you know I want to mention we were really glad to have Vic Wigman on last time, and he was excellent talking about the genome and genomics and how software was dealt with within his business at um, Expression Analysis, a Q squared company. Um, but I, I thought that was really good. We've got some really great guests coming up. Adam Crane is going to come on from Autumn Attack, which is a company that deals with security within the power grid world and he's going to record with us very soon and then we're also we're still going to have this guy josh anderson i promise from the dude uh he's also from metacast meta-cast i don't know if you've listened to that podcast james a couple of yeah and he he does that with bob galen and i've been really impressed by that it's a really good podcast so flip over there when you want to change from us they talk agile and we look forward to having josh on the show soon. So let's get started about resilience. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. All right. So are you going to type through the whole thing or? I just making a note so I don't forget it while we're talking about some of this resiliency. I'm not very emotionally resilient when people are typing when I'm talking, I guess. But um, anyway, I guess, you know, the, the, the thought came to me. I read a lot about entrepreneurship. I read a lot about how one has to be built and modified in order to become a successful entrepreneur. And one of the things that happens with entrepreneurs from everything I read and everything that I've experienced is you experience a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Yep. A lot of roadblocks, a lot of speed bumps, a lot of uh, punches in the gut. And, uh, you know, I thought about my career leading up to the point where I went out on my own and some of it since then. And every once in a while I come back to this idea of resilience and where does it come from and what is it about? I guess for me, maybe, I, I want to hear your thoughts and how it's been a part of your, your life, but kind of setting the stage and framing this up, James, is there was a contract that I was at where I really wanted to become permanent, and that's not an everyday thing for me. This particular one I was pretty excited about, and I didn't get the contract, and a number of other people got, got the permanent gig. And I was disappointed for a number of reasons, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this kind of stuff happens all the time. I mean, we had the whole episode, episode two or three or four, I don't remember, it was on the blues, and we talked about yep. this kind of stuff. And I guess for me, at that moment, when I realized that I didn't get the permanent job, I got kind of annoyed with it, and I was trying to think, well, how do I deal with this, and what is that called? So I looked up the concept of resilience, the psychological concept of resilience. What was the definition that you saw? 
Well, that's great that you asked because I have it here somewhere. Um, so this is what I what I saw. This is from Psychology Today. There's an article on there. Well, it's not an article. It's a it's a definition of resilience, I guess. It says all about resilience. Resilience is that ineffable quality that allows some people to be knocked down by life and come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain their resolve, they find a way to rise from the ashes. Psychologists have identified some of the factors that make someone resilient, among them a positive attitude, optimism, the ability to regulate emotions, and the ability to see failure as a form of helpful feedback. Even after misfortune, resilient people are blessed with such an outlook that they are able to change course and soldier on. So I read that and I thought, well, that's really great, but how do you get more of that? I don't, I don't know if you've ever had these thoughts. Yeah, all the time. I think, you know, the, the luminaries in the entrepreneurial guruship world, and I've even paid money to some of them uh, to, to kneel at their feet and, and get the wisdom. Um, they sometimes will talk about grit, meaning you're going to have to have grit to, to survive uh, as an entrepreneur. And I, I don't think that's ever not been the case, right? Because when, you, when you're an employee, you're sort of um, giving that, that function of having grit to your boss, right? Mm. You're kind of, uh, you're saying to someone else, I- I'm going to surrender uh, the share in the greater riches because I'm going to take less of the, the headache of having to deal with all the calamities that a business may face. Mm. So, but when you're, so when you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of saying, I'm going to do this myself, right? You can't really foist that off on anybody else. And, you know, you, I know we spend a lot of time trying to reduce risk, but you can never eliminate it. Uh, so yeah, you have to be used to being, um, kicked in sensitive locations. <laughs> I, you know, I know, uh, one of my best friends, he for years ran a, uh, an online business that was very successful and was on the verge of handing in his paperwork to say, I quit to his boss. Uh, like this was, you know, he's going to live the dream, and then because he had his business built at that point, and it was, yeah. it had positive cash flow, and he Absolutely. was ready to use that to replace his income. Yep. Was excellent. And yeah. he both he, both he and a business partner, and um, I think the like the next day, Google uh, made a bunch of changes to how traffic was being routed. These are some of the the infamous Panda updates from several yeah. years ago, and it completely uh, torpedoed a lot of their traffic to the point where he he couldn't go that route, and so. Uh, that's a calamity, and so, but he's still running the business, right? So, yeah, like you have to be able to to bounce back from these things. And I guess the question you're asking is, how do you? It, what is what is resilience? Is it is like a, a finite reserve that everybody has? Is it a, is it like a skill, or is it like muscular strength that you can train yourself to become more resilient? Yeah, or is it just built in, and you only have so much, and you can't change it? Yeah, or is it like um, like willpower? I know they've done studies where they figured out that willpower is finite I mean it it renews itself every so often but any given day if you're trying to uh, uh, do some behavior modification if you're constantly draining your willpower resisting bad choices because you're consciously having to navigate to the new behavior uh, you can exhaust that and so by the Mm -hmm. end of the day you're making horrible choices you just they've they've discovered that I didn't know that yeah Um, so that's why a lot of people that talk about behavior modification they're like you know take the choices away from yourself make it really easy to make the right choices because you're just eliminating those so I mean is is resilience a resource that you can that you can drain away or is it like we're saying is it is it's a sort of a 
an infinite resource they can always tap on because it's like a characteristic. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is the more I started reading about this, the more interesting it became to me because from what I'm reading, it sounds to me like resilience is like I thought it was a supernatural ability. I was thinking it was something that maybe not supernatural, but there were there were people who had a lot of it yep. and there were people who had a little bit of it. And most of us had a little bit of it because otherwise we would have these millionaire lifestyles and we would have gone through all of the all of the pain points in life and, and manage them easily and without a lot of challenge. But the fact is that resilience is actually something that we all have. And the only reason that we survive is because of it. Like everybody has resilience built into them. It's a, it's less of a exceptional quality than it is one that we all have. Um, and that, that really kind of blew my mind. I think, yeah, I was thinking just now about children. You, you've got young kids, so mm-hmm. you, you're, I'm sure at some point it's like, okay, let's learn how to walk, right? And a child doesn't doesn't walk the first time he tries. It's a long, frustrating, grinding yeah. process, but every day they come back and they're like, okay, I'm going to try again, I'm going to try again, I'm going to try yeah. again. And you watch them have falls and it yeah. hurts you worse than it hurts them, even if they're the one crying, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I guess... Um, I guess that was kind of eye-opening to me to think about the fact that everybody had it. But then thinking back just on the last few years that I that I started Beaufort Fairmont and got it going and started acquiring clients and doing something of value with them and and having clients go a different way at certain points and, and that's perfectly fine and that's the way that it goes and signing on new clients and all this kind of stuff and getting my tax bill and whatever else... Um, what I realized is that over time, if you're aware of it and if you want to improve it, at least for me, the downtime that I have between one fall down and the next get up is getting smaller and smaller. I don't know if that's happening for you. Yeah, I, I have noticed that. Uh, I I don't think I've had um, major disasters, but I think I've had lots of experiments that have gone nowhere. And so... I'm thinking back years ago where I think I would have tried something and it might not have worked out and I just would have shelved trying that again until, you know, another year. And I think now it's like the, the cadence of that is picked up to the where, you know, it's okay if, if an experiment doesn't work out, well, I'll just try something else tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but some, sometimes it does, it takes more than 24 hours. Yeah. And sometimes it's a thing that you have to work through, like to even realize that you failed or that something failed, you know, and that, that seems to be like a part of it is understanding that something didn't work is as much a part of resilience as the point at which you realize it and then having to recover. Yeah. It's all part, it all feels like part of the same action to me, part of the same subroutine. To, to make it sound like I'm 85 years old, subroutine, James. How about that? Part of the same method. Part of the same You've been running on a PDP 11 since 1965. <laughs> um, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> the PDP 11s are like the old uh, Vax Unix systems. Oh, okay. All right. And I think there was one. Um, you just I, alienated every well, 20 something. I'm to sorry. It. This, is, <laughs> this is because I was just an administrator at one point, and you would hear the long, the silverback Unix beards talking about, well, back in my day, I ran time jobs on a PDP 11. You kids got it all, you know. Um, but you know, is it is it like when you're when you're a kid, you you've got to have resilience to to figure out how to make your legs move and how to you know handle a, a ball and talk. 
Uh, all these skills you have to face the daily disasters of not making it. But then you think as we get older, um, we sort of lose touch with the resilience that we that's all in, that's inside of us. I think so. I, I I think either we lose touch with it or or something else happens. Maybe maybe it is more like a muscle that we use, and maybe over time, if you don't use it, it becomes withered and dies. Not dies completely, but withered, and you have to work it up again, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that there are, this is a very careful conversation to have because I don't want to go down a certain track. Um, oh, we're going there. <laughs> Buckle up. I think that there are certain institutions uh, that can um, have that effect. Wait, wait, you're telling me that... I think the educational system can do that, yes, James, yes. Well, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, is, is there is there some place that we go to that uh, trains us to reject our individual desires and sublimate them to the desires of authority figures? Well, why do you, But the other thing is it also... I think that the transition from the educational system in the United States as it is today to the workforce is as seamless as it could be in terms of understanding how authority works and being benign to that authority. Um, when you move out on your own, people will ask you, why are you doing that? And the reason they ask you why, or the reason that they just get angry or don't want to talk to you or tell you about all the people they know that failed or all the risks involved is because they haven't been exposed to it. And I wasn't exposed to it growing up. Um, it's something that's very new to me, but there are people that do it every day. There, there are lots of different ways to feed your family in life yeah. more than just being an employee. And this is one different way. But we're, I don't know if we're getting way off on a tangent, but that resiliency, I think, can... Um, what's the word that I'm looking for uh, to, when you don't use a muscle? and Atrophy. Yeah, it can atrophy yeah. over time. I believe it can atrophy over time. And... And, and I think it's something that you, you have to build back up if you, if you really want to. But it's, it's as painful as anything else. Yeah, if, I guess if you, if you allow a calamity to, to dictate how you react to it, you just kind of lie down and wallow in self-pity uh, and not really accept the new reality. I think that, yeah, that is kind of like an atrophy. But, but think about what's happening there. I mean, a part of that is how you're allowing the world around you to identify you and to mark you and to label you. And I think that that's a big part of what happens to a bunch of us in this particular society growing up is that we're taught that we're a C student. We're taught that we're, we're not going to be successful because obviously only a students will ever be successful. Right. I mean, and the fact is I look around at a students and the definition of success that we look at in society whether it's money or fast cars or whatever we look at in the secular world, I believe most, a lot of those people that I knew that made straight A's, they're not doing those things. Instead, they either work for a, a corporation yeah. where they are in upper management but not at the top, or they have lots of degrees and don't necessarily reach as far as I would have thought you would as far as I was taught you would with straight A's and all those degrees yeah, or, or something else or they, they homeschool their kids or they become a teacher which all those things are absolutely terrific I'm not saying they're not they, they absolutely are and I love that there are people who do those things 
But the straight-A students aren't necessarily tied to success in the secular world the same way that education teaches us that they will be. And right. so when you look at those things, those are just labeling mechanisms in a lot of ways. And getting your mind out of, I'm a C student and into something else is challenging. Um, yeah. letting, and, and like you, what were you saying? You were saying that basically that the failure that you experience can identify you as much as anything else. But really, we should be looking at the resilience. Are we going to stay who we are with the same values and the same principles through this? It's okay to make changes along the way, but... Yeah, I think I think we do get trained to accept the identities that uh, once we've been the bolt has been created uh, through school. Uh, especially once you get poured in that mold, that mold breaks. That can be really a, a disorienting experience. And I remember uh, coming out of the dot bomb, uh, the startup that I joined, you know, laid everybody off, and I you know spent nine months as an unemployed C plus plus programmer. Uh, and that was very very difficult. And it didn't actually get any better until I realized that. Uh, my identity was wrapped up in being employed as a C++ programmer. And it wasn't until I realized that may not happen anymore that emotionally I suddenly got a lot better and I could, uh, you know, have a much better outlook. And lo and behold, like the next month I got a job uh, doing something else. I mean, it was still programming. It just wasn't doing the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I, I think how you, how you get trained for not being resilient there is a process that occurs, and I think a lot of it does come from the school system. Like, like they don't really want you to move outside of that track that you're headed for employment. There, you know, the whole, and, and this is something that's not something that I that I came up with. I think you can look up John Taylor Gatto and sure. uh, you know the stuff that he's been writing about for uh, up until his death, the last thirty years, about how schools are, are basically the extenuation of the Prussian school system, where they needed to train obedient, docile workers and soldiers, right? Hmm. And this was import, imported into the United States in the early part of the 20th century by the progressives, and uh, all the schools are still modeled on this this paradigm where you're basically there to more or less train the children for their roles in society. Uh, and it's not really about education as much as it is the training. And I, but I think part of that training is hammering away the parts of the individual that aren't going to fit in those molds. They're not useful to the people in authority. They need to be filed off, pounded away, etc. And I, th- I do think that we lose resilience when that happens. Mm-hmm. Because just like a child who's learning how to walk, if, if you're not allowed to make ridiculous failures and experience those failures again and again, then the muscle atrophies. Yeah. Well, and the other... there were I had so many thoughts when you were talking about one, <laughs> one of them... Uh, I really identified with the idea and don't get me wrong. I, you and I, um, I know that we have some differences on the concepts of education and, and we don't necessarily have to dig into do all of them. I don't want to like derail the conversation yeah, yeah, too much yeah. about that, but, um, but you and I are, are a little bit different on that. And, and just personally, I believe that there are so many great things about education and I, I want to make sure people understand we're not saying don't go to school or quit school or whatever. I, Unless you're, you have a giant contract with IBM and you're the next Bill Gates or something, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're saying here is, is that, is that right? I mean, I, that's the way I feel. Like, I'm not, well, I think there are great things about the educational system. I think that a lot of it has been screwed up by bureaucrats. Um, I think there's a lot of learning that can go on in the classroom and that individual teachers uh, can do a lot more than they're doing right now if we get off of their backs. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I just like, you know, 
again, not to, to, to reveal this too much into about the education system, but yeah, I'm sure that all the teachers that are there, you know, joined because they originally had an idea about, well, I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to do this for the kids. And, you know, I just like, I think you said you're, you know, your family and a lot of people members of my family, like they work in the education system mm-hmm. and you listen to their frustrations about how, you know, yeah, they want to interact with the kids and do right by the kids. But at the same time, there's so much, there's a political, uh, what's the right word? Straightjacket? <laughs> the teachers have to operate yeah. in, you know, there's, there's yeah. money issues, um, there's policy issues. Like a yeah. teacher, a teacher just can't educate the way that they feel is best or how they observe the kids might, might be best served. Like there's a curriculum that is handed to them by politicians. Right. So the, so the schools are in fact political extensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, ha- they have to be because everybody's biased in the process and the teacher's the one at the end, well the student's the one at the end. But the teacher's the one second to the end that has to deliver it, whether they... Yeah. They don't have a choice. Like that's, not, right? If they don't do that, they don't have a job. But, but getting back to the resilience part of this, going yeah. through all of that, and I, I graduated from college, you graduated from college, you have an advanced degree, uh, a master's um, in, in computer science. Is that that's what, what they told me. Okay. <laughs> but, so you've done more education than I have, but it's tough to break that mold and to, to work outside of it. I remember the first business-to-business contract that I had just a few years ago my point of contact within the client asked me, why are you doing this? And I, I didn't even know how to have the conversation because the fact is I had finally figured out who I was and what I was meant to do. And for someone to ask me why I'm doing what I'm meant to do, it's, I, I don't know how to have the conversation. And so I just answered, well, my wife wants a beach house. And that's true. My wife wants a beach house. And one day we would love to do that. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because this is who I am. I'm supposed to go out and start new things and try new things and to be different from the crowd and to, to do things the way that I think are best and then then go from there. Did, did this person ask you because you had presented yourself as I'm an entrepreneur or I'm this is my company. This is a company that I work for. Like like if they view you as a person who's going off on their own, like I get all the you know the people when you tell people that they get that kind of weird look on their face. Why would you leave the safety of, of this of of the cube farm? Um, but if you if they if they have to experience an interaction with a, another corporate entity, like a vendor, like if IBM comes in with their sales right. people, would they ask IBM why no. are you doing this? No, no they, they would never ask that. Yeah, right? yeah, they looked at me as an individual. This this person looked at me as an individual, and this person actually looked at me as a member of the organization rather than another business that was doing work. And so that's something that I struggled with early on and still struggle with from time to time is how to make it very clear that this is a business you're doing work with rather than a, an individual or a set of individuals. Yeah. You're just not another employee. Yeah. Right. Well, we, we are not at both our team is outside of, of, of our clients, but we work very, very closely with them and it's seamless in how we do it. But, um, Anyway, I, I don't know. There were a lot of other thoughts there. I don't. We're we're pretty far into this, and maybe we should come back to it at some point. I think so. Uh, and even talking about, you know, you said you work closely with clients, and I know that because I work with you. But maybe folks out there would not be interested in saying, "Hey, you know, I have the same problem. Uh, how do I, you know, make that distinction clear to my clients? Yeah. What you know exactly? What is the work relationship? But. And, and, and we can come back to that, but just real quick, since yeah. you posed the question, the thing that, that I see that I'm learning so far are, are a couple of things. Number one, setting expectations in the beginning of who is how the work is going to be done. Number two, 
not being in their office all the time because uh, familiarity breeds contempt and that works that's that's what happens with some of this stuff um, and setting setting terms I think and then making just making it clear to restate the brand over and over and over again and uh, the ability to move people in and out of a contract and and to, to do work that way and make it about the brand delivering a product rather than than an individual delivering hours is is a thing that I'm trying to learn to do better yeah yeah so let me let me see if I can if I can summarize and and provide a, a tasty tidbit uh, for the folks listening uh, if the loss of resilience is atrophy, what's our what's our remedy? What's our deadlift to regrow that resilience muscle? Is there a concrete tactical it's, thing it's that you can your do? Taxes on quarterly basis is good luck with that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Is it? Did someone just have to file some paperwork? Did you? What do you mean? Oh, for quarterly taxes? Yeah, is yeah. that why you're bringing? Oh, no, I just I. I for me personally, some of the times when I've had to be most resilient is on um, just before April the 15th when I look at what my tax bill is because it's almost impossible to figure out how much you're going to owe on your taxes when the end of the year comes around. So I'm always off by gigantic amounts and that's even with an accountant and working closely with them on a quarterly basis to make sure that we're in line. So sorry, that's just... No, so maybe it's it's like you can't you can't escape the calamities and the troughs. You can't. Uh, but maybe it is a matter of being very, just the act of being conscious about how you're feeling about the calam- the calamity, as we'll call it, and you're deciding, yeah, I'm experiencing this this terrible feeling. I'm 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 I know I'm in a bad spot, but I know that I can't sit still. Yeah. And it's sitting still is part of that atrophy process. But the decision not to sit still and to try again is that's where you're deciding. I'm going to lift that heavy weight. And I'm going to strengthen the resilience within me rather than just letting it die. Yeah. Like a like a kitten in the cold. <laughs> like a kitten in the cold. Like a kitten in the cold. And let's put a fork in that conversation. So what was the other part we were going to talk about? So I tweeted out this link. I, yes. I saw this link. Um, I, I thought it was a very well-written article. I looked at who wrote it and, uh, and, and realized that it was a... Um, it's been written by someone who provides a service to basically allow you to configure your application, to send out software into the world, into the production world, and flip a switch, flip flags to turn it on or yeah. on or off. You, you want to you want to frame it better than that? I didn't do well, a very good job with that. I think that that's pretty close. Um, yeah, it's the CEO of Launch Darkling, and. Um, and so maybe we can talk, like, if you want to go read the article, you just pause the podcast. We'll wait. Okay, <laughs> well, now on, that you've on, read let's it. Wait. <laughs> oh, we just waited. I'm sorry. Hold on. Pause it now. Okay. Uh, okay, we're back. So, wait, no. Talk- <laughs> <laughs> wait, are you saying someone didn't wait, get to read it? They, they might not have paused part yet. Okay. <laughs> um, so, from my reading of the article, her, her basic argument is that, you know, uh, we have these separate systems in the deployment pipeline. You might have a development environment, and then you might have a, uh, a staging environment, and then you have a, the production environment. And so the traditional uh, method has been to uh, promote code and configuration changes from, from one environment to the next uh, with the idea that you're at every step you're integrating all the changes 
as frequently as possible. And then when the staging environment looks good, you have more confidence that the next promotion to production isn't going to bite you in a really horribly painful way. Um, and so her her take and there's a lot of buzzwords in this uh, in this section that I'll just briefly read. Um, but she says that maintaining separate systems uh, like that is a legacy of waterfall development and will be subsumed by true agile deployment and what I'm calling DevOps 2.0. So there's five or six big old buzzwords in there. Uh, you know, at one point, agile meant something, DevOps meant something, uh, you know, legacy. These, these all have like loaded terms. But, you know, so the question is, is what she's saying true? Is is having separate systems, is that really going to slow you? Is that, is that an unnecessary product of a bygone era? Should everybody go out and say, oh, no more staging environment. Uh, we're just going to, we're going to push stuff directly to production. And the way we're going to get around the fear and pain of having a bad code change is that we're going to try to isolate the functionality of the code so that we can selectively turn on and off the bits. And we're going to put a flag around it. We're going to put a flag around it. Yeah. And, um, okay, Paul, thoughts? Well, so here's the thing. You and I didn't prepare on, like, good versus evil or devil's advocate versus... Take whatever position whatever. you like. So, just so that people know that, I mean, I, you know my position because <laughs> you saw my tweet and we got into this conversation. So, first of all, I have some biases, right? Yeah. I have done software engineering for a long time. I put lots of products out into the production world. I've seen them travel through waterfall methodologies or traditional methodologies or lightweight methodologies or agile ones and whatever else. <clears throat> I've been a part of testing groups and tested myself. I've led those groups and managed them, and I now work with automated testing, and so I have a certain bias and a certain interest in, in this. I guess, to me, the question is, are we not going fast enough? Like, we're, we're finally at the point where lots of companies deploy once or more per day. They're deploying yeah. code. Which, 10 years ago, for those of you guys that just got out of college... That was unthinkable. And unthinkable. We, I, just in uh, 2008 was, uh, the latter part was seven years or so ago. We were still on six month periods of, of release periods. Yep. Um, and I've seen it since then. I've seen it many times since then. 2010, 2012 for sure. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen it a lot of times, but there are companies who are at the point where they're releasing once a day or, or once a week or whatever. Is that not fast enough, I guess, is my first question. Like, why, why do we think that that's not fast enough? Do we, because you get down to, at a certain point, there is a long, a long pull in the tent. Excuse my Dilbert pointy-haired manager term, but there's a long pull in the tent of, of certain tasks that has to get done. And you say, okay, well, that task has to be done by an individual. It can't be split up because you can't. it's the same thing as you can't take nine women and make a baby in one month. It's just got to get done by somebody at some point. Well... Why do we want to, how, do, how can we do that faster? Have we not tried everything? And why do we think that by putting code that may or may not be ready for production out into a production environment and putting a flag on it, which by the way, how many times have I seen fail? Only a gazillion. Oh, well, it's just configured. It can go out right now. We can just turn it off. Nope. 
Nope, it relies on a data model that you changed in order to make this feature work. And we have not tested everything else around it in order to see if that data model works or, or something along those lines, right? Um, maybe the configuration file has changed and just reading it in will completely hose the system because we're not ready for that particular property to be in the system yet. It, uh, sorry, maybe I'm talking in monolithic terms about, you know, or talking about monolithic applications and maybe having microservices changes all that. Sorry. I, I don't believe it. What, what are your thoughts? Okay. Uh, for those of you that uh, want to send hate mail, the address <laughs> is dpalmerrill. Uh, you know, it's, um, I, I think, I think I kind of agree. Like, uh, I, I totally, I don't, and some, some of the stuff that you touched on is not really what, what she was pointing at, but I think, I think bringing out what you just did is really important to talk about because she doesn't really talk about the downsides of the fact that, oh, a feature flag, and then that's, that's going to be enough. Uh, to uh, to do it, um, I, I can see the advantage to making a code change very very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a critical bug, we need to fix it. We've all been there. You want to get the bug out as quick as possible. Like I get that, but I think for like for making changes because you want additional functionality, the bigger the change set, the more chances you're going to have errors. So you're kind of caught in this paradox of well, we'd like to make lots of incremental small changes and get those up production as soon as possible, so that there is an error. Our search space for the problem is very, very small. But at the same time, if you have a large existing system, if you rely on something that, you know, it's just a feature flag, and this may be simplifying it, but like you said, if you make a change, if there's an unintended change somewhere else that you didn't account for that's not under the feature flag, um, you have a problem. So then it's then it becomes like... like and not, now it's a problem in production. It is a problem. And so then it's, then it's not mean time to... Uh, to uh, repair its repair time, right? Right. So and the repair becomes much more complex because you don't even know what the side effect was until it's already in production. And how, what does that mean for your users? And so I, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of hesitation about about number one, the, the technical side of of getting rid of a staging server. Why can't you just do both? Why can't we have feature flags and a staging server? Yeah. But I think you know, it's like okay, this she brings us well. There's a cost to it. Well, yeah, I mean. I'd much rather pay the cost because $3,000 or $30,000 for a staging server seems to me like if like that's going to pay itself off by not having issues that yeah. you could avoid by having staging right. server. As opposed to how many hundreds of hours tracking down some issue. Well, that people don't cost anything. You know? That's right. I forgot. People don't cost anything. Uh, but, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely... I think that's that's an excellent critique, and I can see why you, in your tweet you were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, go for it." Uh, call me back when you guys are serious. Yeah. Um, but, well, the other thing is the complication of configuration flags. I hope I didn't interrupt you. There. No, go ahead. But but basically, you've you've seen as much as I have. You start adding configuration flags, and they're a great thing, and they can add to a lot of flexibility in how you deploy software. And I'm not against having flags or settings or configurations in software. You have to have them. However, the more you get, the more complex it gets to debug through them because you end up with configuration flags nested within other ones. And you end up with ones that are very, very abstract and you don't know why. So we've seen this at some point where you have two configuration flags, which basically means you have on and off for each, which is four possibilities, and only three of them are ever used or checked or tested in any way. And when you do the fourth one, no one really knows what's going to happen. So I just got to say, look, we don't just answer how do we deliver software faster by adding flags. That just, sorry, doesn't fly in my book. Yeah, and I, I think this, I think it is. There is a bias, right? So if you're a technical person, you see 
the struggles of the business as a technical problem. And I think when you're, we're getting to that point where we are getting, we, we know a lot about how to make the production of software fast as, as we can get it. And so we're, I think we're getting to the point of diminishing returns on some of these adventures. And I think that if you're really looking at what's going to accelerate revenue and profit for your company, the bottleneck is probably not engineering at some point. At some point you have shifted the bottleneck to the market. So you're, you're looking at, well, how are we going to make more money? Well, it's not making the production of software faster, necessarily, like more updates per day. It's probably in the sales pipeline. It's probably in opening up new markets for the software itself. In the communication between individuals who want certain features. In, yeah. In the process that you have to get signed off in order to move forward or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Is that, is that what you're saying? It's I, probably somewhere else. Yeah, and so the I mean the focus on well we need to we need to do this faster we need to do this faster like at some point you're like I think I think this this part of the business is is going as fast as it can and making this part of the business faster is not going to make the business as a whole healthier. Yeah. Um, I just I think you can make development faster in, in a lot of cases probably sure. in the majority of cases if not a very big majority of the cases of software shops. However, getting rid of the process by which we ensure that software is doing the right thing before it goes out is not the way to do it in my book, in most cases. And I, I, there's probably a place for this. I'm sure that there are companies who can use it. I'm sure that there are places where, uh, and I feel like this is in, in it. I don't mean this to be anything against this company because they're just trying to make money. I, I get it. It's just that when I, when I, and maybe it's not fair. We'll definitely, we would love to have, Edith or anybody else from the company on that wants to come on. It's just that this just does not seem like a good way. No, knowing what I know after 15 years of software engineering, this is a, not the way to do it. I, I'm sure there's somebody out there right now listening to this right now who has just thrown their McDonald's banana shake against the wall in fury. <laughs> what we've just said. No, you're wrong. Uh, do reach out to us and, and tell us yeah. how we're wrong. And if you'd like to... Uh, be on the podcast and you know actually and you talk can settle it. down and scrape the scrape the milkshake off that we you're not invited to bring your milkshake is all we're saying yeah I mean, <laughs> let us know we, we would love to talk to you this is just our opinions we're just two guys yeah just two guys but I, I don't know is that where we wrap it up I think this is a pretty good show here I think so yeah well I've enjoyed talking once again um, oh so I did my talk over at TriTog, which is Triangle Test Automation Users Group, and it was hosted at Bronto, which usually does it. And it was, it, I thought it was very good. I really appreciate it, not my part of it, but the fact that I, so many people came out, so many people came with their ideas on data strategies within automated testing. They all contributed. They all had um, thoughts about how the presentation could be improved in preparation of Tiska in March. Uh, and I just really appreciate each one of them. And I'm honored to spend that time with people as I am with you guys on Reflection as a Service every every single time we do this. I wanted to also point out, Paul, you did something very specific, though, before you went to the talk. And you told me that that actually changed the, the nature of the of the audience. Yeah. So I hadn't, I, I don't know. This, so I've been doing presentations for a number of years now. And I'm constantly trying different things to see how they work, whether it's how the slides look or how I present myself or whatever it is. 
in this case, I actually titled it something different, which was an open forum on data strategies. And people came in with the idea of bringing in their thoughts. And it was almost immediate. I set the agenda of kind of, I was going to go through a few minutes of just setting the stage and framing the talk. But then after that, I sat down and everybody was ready to talk. And they did. And I really, really appreciate it. But that's a trick I don't know if other people already know about or whatever. But it's a neat little technique that I'm, I'm learning. So, And I might have to do it every time because I love talking to people and hearing what they have to say. So, yeah. Awesome. But that was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, Tiska's coming up, the Tiska conference in March. I'm going to be speaking there with the more formalized view of that. Um, I reached out to uh, Star West with a submission. I've never tried to get in any of those con- con- conferences uh, with, this, with a similar presentation about data strategies and automated testing. They actually gave me a call like the very next day, and I was really impressed by that. And I, I, you know what? If I, if I don't get in, that's fine. I was just really thrilled to get a call and to get to talk to somebody from your organization. That means that somebody's trying to do a very good job there, and, and I appreciate it. So Sweet. Pretty cool. And you're, so you're doing, you're doing Tisco for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I just found out about a regional Elixir conference in St. Augustine, Florida. Ooh, you're uh, my old stomping ground. Elixir, yes. Well, I don't think I've been to St. Augustine since I was, oh, I don't know, uh, 23. I went there actually Whoa, as, a civil, decades. as a Civil War reenactor. <laughs> That's how long it really? was. Really? Were you for the North or the South? It was a uh, Confederate infantry unit called the 7th Florida. Oh. And so... Um, I can tell you some of my reenacting stories at another time, but um, we the, that particular unit does a monthly billet or used to at one of the forts at the at the inlet, cool. and so um, I was was going through there for one of those events. Um, but yeah, it'd be good to go back to Florida. But that's on March fourth, I believe, in uh, Saint Augustine, Florida. So cool. I'm uh, I'm I'm looking around at other people who are like, hey, I'm going to be there. Uh, look me up. I'd like to meet some more Elixirians. Uh, out in the wild. Cool. And then, of course, uh, in April is MicroConf, and that's going to be in Las Vegas. So maybe I'll meet some folks out there as well. Yeah, excellent. Well, once again, I'm Paul Maryland from Beaufort Fairmont. Our mission is to rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. Give us a yell sometime online at BeauftFairmont.com. There's plenty of other ways to get a hold of us. You can reach me, D. Paul Merrill, on Twitter. James is J.D. Jeffers. That's correct. And that's us. Thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate your time. Make sure to tune in next time. I believe we'll have Adam Crane on from Automattack. And we'll have Josh Anderson coming up as well from the dude, the school dudes. Thank you.